Would you take that king's word and turn to Matthew 6? We want to continue our study in the Lord's Prayer. And this week we often call Holy Week, and I'm fascinated with the human interaction around Easter in the Scriptures. We have typically what we call Palm Sunday today, and we have this image of Christ riding into Jerusalem, and there's cheers, there's praise, there's excitement in the air. In fact, some of the commentators speculate that, you know, this was a day where they actually would take the sheep being slaughtered for Passover into Jerusalem. As they were herding those sheep in, there was some speculation that Jesus was riding in the midst of those sheep, the great Passover lamb. But regardless, most people who were cheering missed the point. They had their images, they had their plans for the Messiah, but God's plan was far greater. It was greater than just to conquer a nation or a world. It wasn't bound by time and space. It was eternal. And I'm curious how many times we limit God and do not permit him to move in us to something far greater than we could ask or even think. So cheers went up. Hosanna. A few days later, some of those same people were yelling, crucify him. In a few days, Christ will be asking his disciples to watch and pray. Now, I know we sang a hymn this morning called Sweet Hour Prayer. Those hours in the garden were not real sweet. In fact, it says he literally sweat blood drops. But we know the disciples failed miserably at praying with him. So what does all this tell us about human nature? When you look at the collection of stories around Easter, I think it says we can get some things right and some things wrong at the same time. That we too are guilty of hail Messiah and crucify him. It tells me that we're fickle at best. We're so easily swayed by groups that some follow political correctness and others oppose political correctness. But we kind of just get in the mass movement of whatever's happening around us. It also tells me that even when we are proven wrong, we fight to keep the illusion alive that we are right. After the resurrection, something so powerful, and yet the religious leaders are still trying to pay somebody off to do what? Well, why don't you tell these people the disciples came and stole the body? It tells me that we often miss out the best that God has for us. We do so out of fear, whether like Peter a narrow vision, all we can see is our own little world. Or, you know, sometimes we're just too tired and we fall asleep in the garden when Christ says, come and pray with me. This is where prayer comes in. It's a necessary part of who we are. Now, last week, I talked about three basic types of prayer that follow this pattern that Jesus gave us. There was the upward prayer of all, and that's what we focused on last week. The importance of praise and thanksgiving for who God is. Because our view of God shapes our worldview of self and others. And so the first three petitions, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not something just ethereal down the road when he comes again, it's going to be like this. He says, no, I want you to bring what I'm living like in heaven down to earth. 
Some might say these are the core values of prayer. So when we ask, we ask in a way that does not dishonor him. We ask in a way that does not defy his kingdom. We ask in a way that does not distort his will. So when he says, ask anything you want, those are the parameters. But prayer bends us towards knowing God more and more. You can know about God, but prayer helps us to know him in a personal, intimate way. And there's a vast difference. Then we talk briefly about the inward prayer. We're going to get into this week, the prayer of intimacy, confession, repentance, self-examination, where the inside of us needs to get fixed. And then there's the outward prayer, the prayer of intercession, our needs and the needs of others. But the first is how we look at God. The second is how we look at ourselves. And the third is how we look at our world. And this order is absolutely critical. Now let me encourage you this morning. If God wants to teach you anything, do you realize that you have to unlearn some things as well? Christian faith is not the simple accumulation of knowledge. We have to confess that some of the knowledge we had might not be the way that God wants us to think. I think about the disciples in the Luke passage. Before this prayer, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And we need to ask the same question. But let's be careful that we do not get so caught up in the method that we fail to understand the importance of prayer in our hearts. As Jesus told us in Matthew 6, it's not about the length. It's not about the repetition. It's not about the model or method. It's a matter of our hearts. So Matthew chapter 6. Let's pray this together again. After the manner, therefore, pray ye and pray with me. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That brings us to the fourth petition. We looked at the first three last week. The fourth. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, this is a metaphor. Daily trust and dependence every single day. Bread deals with the necessities rather than the luxuries. So the first part of this prayer, he is saying that Jesus is our true bread. And we have to understand that both physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But if we understand this, and if we have a daily trust that he will supply our breads, our needs will form a very different framework. Think about manna existence. Going back to the Old Testament. Children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. God supplied manna every single day. And what happened? It was just good enough for one day. If you tried to keep it, it would get rotten for the second day. But this manna had a unique quality that when it hit the Sabbath, it was good for two days. And you can imagine the argument saying, well, we tried this before, it doesn't work. And they went hungry the seventh day. But it's trusting God that he is faithful that he will do. We do not like man existence. Suffer us, isn't it? Why? Well, we love to hoard. Look at our houses. Look at our closets. 
See, somehow we think the accumulation of stuff somehow creates security and safety. But the byproduct of that is it causes us to ask for things that he's already given us power to do. And we just go on not realizing what he's placed in our hands. I love the story of Tony Campalo where he just finished a conference somewhere and he got off a plane and there was a group of ladies meeting him. He had completely forgotten that he was supposed to speak to a group of ladies, missionary ladies, in downtown Philadelphia. So he's tired. They're hauling him off and he's thinking the whole time, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? What am I going to preach? And there was about a thousand ladies in this auditorium, part of a missionary association. He says, before he spoke, the lady stood up and said, well, there's a missionary over here, so-and-so, and and they need $72,000. I don't know the exact figure, but it was $70,000-plus. And we should pray about this, and they prayed about it, and then she introduced Brother Campalo to preach. And he got this crazy idea like he often does. He stood up. He walked down to the front, grabbed an offering plate, took his wallet out, dumped it into the offering plate, looked at the first lady, said, now it's your turn. And he went right down through the auditorium the whole way. And everybody he made come up, dump their purse and their money into the offering plate. They counted it. It well exceeded the $72,000 they needed. And he had a one-line sermon. He said, the audacity to ask God for something he's already given us the power to do. There's a book I have on my shelf called The Hunger for More. It's a secular book. I love the subtitle. And as you know me, I buy books out of titles. I see a great title, I have to read it. The subtitle is Searching for Values in an Age of Greed. It was written in 1989 by Lawrence Shames. Again, a secular sociologist. Listen to what he says about the 80s. I know some of you weren't even around the 80s, so listen to what it's like then. He writes this, this finally was the oddest thing of all about the 80s. The decades' perverse insistence on making obsessions of precisely those things that were causing people to be anxious, unhappy, and fretful. And he was talking about money and possessions, our accumulation and stockpiling of money and possessions. Isn't that fascinating that a secular sociologist backs up what Scripture says? See, often the problem is that we still want to be in control. When we pray about our daily bread, we do not want to yield control over to Christ. We want it to be about our kingdom and our will. Martin Luther expands this thought of praying for our daily bread. Here's what he says. When we pray for our daily bread, we are praying against that we will exploit what we have. We are praying for a generous heart because it's not just about us. And see how this plays out? Like next week, we're having an Easter offering to bless Eric G. in Morocco. And in your mind, if you simply say, well, I'm going to divide up my tithe. I'm going to give some to him and some to the church. That's not a generous heart. Generous heart says, wait a minute. You got all this stuff stockpiled over here. What are you going to give over and what are you going to trust me for? See, it's prayers like that that move us to what is often called hilarious generosity. And we not only ask for ourselves, we ask for others. You know, give us this day our daily bread is a primal cry for help. It's just not about me. It's about outward focused. 
And when we ask with the right hard hearts, we participate with God in his work. Now, there's two forms of petitionary prayer. I should say there's two forms. There's two purposes for petitionary prayer. Asking for needs for ourselves and needs for others. One is to align our hearts with God. When we say, give us this day of daily bread, we are aligning ourselves with thy will be done. It's also to put the world right. Thy kingdom come. But this is why we ask. It's to align ourselves in this world and put ourselves in humble submission before God. That moves us to the fifth petition. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This deals with our relationship with God and others. It deals with confession and repentance. That's where that comes into play. If we forget the costliness of forgiveness, if we somehow just ride over that and do not realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior, we will have superficial confession. And you can tell when it's superficial because it leads to continual guilt, continual shame, continual self-loathing. It leads to never good enough, my life of self-pity. And you will not live a life that honors God if you have superficial confession and repentance. And remember last week I said you can't decouple those two? I mean, they're one of the same. You can't confess and not repent. So if we think we live the life good enough, that God should bless us the way we think he should bless us. So that's superficial or legalistic confession and repentance. And it's very destructive. Easter is about God treating Jesus as we deserved so that he could treat us as Jesus deserved. I'm going to say that again. Think about that. Easter is God treating Jesus as we deserved. He bore our sins. So he could treat us as Jesus deserved, that we can be part of his family, sons and daughters. I like what Martin Luther says. If anyone insists on his or her own goodness and despises others, let him look into himself when this petition confronts him. He will find that he is no better than others and that in the presence of God, everyone must duck his head and come into the joy of forgiveness only through the low door of humility. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's a challenge to our pride. It's a test of our reality. It's deep humility. It's we come to worship to an audience of one. It's deep honesty about self. It takes away our self-deception. If we have not seen our sin, if we do not seek radical forgiveness from God, then we will be unable to forgive and seek good of those who have wronged us. And we will have unresolved bitterness. And it's a sign that we are not right with God. If we hold a grudge and refuse to forgive, then we must be aware of seeking forgiveness from God for our sins. Now, I want to clarify something this morning. I'm well aware that some of you have gone through some unthinkable circumstances, unthinkable sins at the hands of other people. I've walked with and I've seen the depth of what humanity can do to each other. Let me tell you what forgiveness is not and then tell you what it is and then tell a short story. Forgiveness is not feeling like we have forgiven. Some days forgiveness is like Jesus praying in the garden. 
Father, can you take this from me? (laughs) I am literally sweating drops of blood because of what I have to do. Forgiveness is a choice. It's a simple choice that we will treat the other person as if they did not commit the offense. Now let me tell a short story. And I have permission to tell this story, so I'm not violating any kind of confidence. It's about Terry, who was, she actually was molested by every single male member of her audience, her family, from father to uncles to brothers. So she was one of these people that struggled deeply with forgiveness. And of course, none of them would admit it. And I remember her telling me that, you know, in her heart, in her emotions, she goes, I do not want my father ever to find Christ. I want him to burn in hell for what he did. So how can I forgive him? And I told Terry two things. I says, number one, I said, it's, you got to treat him like he never committed that. Now, it doesn't mean you don't take your kids around and things like that. I mean, there's boundaries you set up because of who he is and what he's done. But at the same time, you did not impose and try to get revenge. That's the other thing is, I said, if your father ever comes to faith in Christ, he'll take care of your heart. I said, I get that you do not want to see him for all eternity. Her father was in the hospital one time with a life-threatening illness. And the short end of the story is she got the privilege of leading him to the Lord. And God took care of the heart at that moment. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Number six, lead us not into temptation. Now, this is not that we should or never will be tempted. The critical word here is into. It's entering into. It's giving into sin. And when temptation comes, what will we do with that? There's usually two extremes. One extreme is we we think we do not need God, so we're going to wrestle on our own, and we can take care of this because we are strong enough. It's like trying to outrain a freight train. You may do it for a few short feet, but it will catch you, and it will run you over. Then the other way we deal with temptation is, you know what? There's no hope. My story's different. It's useless. I can never get away from this, so I just give in. Both are lies of Satan. So the prayer of not going into temptation is, Keep me from turning this temptation into sin. And number seven, deliver us from evil. Some translations, when you look at the original languages, literally keep us from the evil one. He is the prince and power of this world. And he wishes to do us harm. And he's described many ways. One of those ways is an angel of light. As an angel of light, he convinces us that we know better than God. And that's willful sin. Did God really say? It also teaches us that the enemy is not each other. It's systems of this world. It's ideologies that go against God. When we let them into our hearts, they distort and destruct the relationships around us. So deliver us from the evil one. I want us for a moment to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. I 
I hope you see the order this morning that we start with always with God and who he is, and it's about his will, it's about his kingdom. And then it's a daily trust about every single day. But if we're going to achieve what God wants us to achieve, we have to make sure that we do not engage in sin and we do not engage in not forgiving people who've wronged us. Those two things will enslave us. And we'll be enslaved to a master that seeks our destruction, not one that seeks life and our freedom. The Bible's full of prayer. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul has this prayer. Listen to it. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, note how he starts out this pattern about praising God for who he is. He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And then he has three petitions, starting at verse 17. That's what the so that, so that is for. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all fullness of God. Three petitions. Christ may dwell in your heart to know his love and to be filled with the fullness of God. Now remember, these were Christians he was praying for. If you flip this around, you suddenly realize that it's possible to live with a high degree of phoniness and inauthenticity. It's possible to fail to move from truth in our minds to truth in our hearts. Let me spread that out a little more. It's possible to have sound doctrine, perform ethical and religious duties, and have no grace in your heart. That's called institutional religion or Pharisaism. We can be good people with good intentions where legalism rules and not grace. Not allowing Christ to change who we are is a sin. You know, I hear all the time people say, well, I don't like to change. I don't have to change. Well, guess what? If you want to follow Jesus, you will change. Why? Because we are all sinners. We are sinners in the need of grace, in the need of transformation. Transformation is change. It's radical change. Think about the Lord's Prayer. In an effort to experience God in a way that he will transform you in his likeness, that's really what this is about. It's about his will, about his kingdom. It's about learning to trust every single day. It's letting go things that will cause our own destruction. And then embracing the very end of that. For thine is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever. Amen. There's a book of common prayer. I don't know how many of you have ever read it. It has some fascinating stuff in it. One thing I ran across is they have a baptismal liturgy. And the person who's getting baptized prays this prayer. And he prays it or she prays it with the congregation. And it's elegant. It's sevenfold. It's prayed over those who are about to be baptized and renewing their commitment in their baptismal vows. I mean, here's what it says. And then don't put the other prayer up yet. Just wait. Deliver them, Lord, from the way of sin and death. Open their hearts to your grace and truth. Fill them with your holy and life-giving spirit. 
Keep them in faith and communion of your holy church. Teach them to love others in the power of the Spirit. Send them into the world and witness to your love. Bring them the fullness of your peace and glory. So you can see how the congregation prays that towards the person being baptized. What I'd like to do this morning in closing is let's personalize that. Let's change the them to us. And if we can have it on our screen, this is what it looks like. And I want you to pray this with me. And as you do, think about what you are praying for. Does God answer prayer? And when you pray this, this is very dangerous. (laughs) Because if God answers this, there will be some transformation in your life. Let's pray this together. Deliver us, Lord, from the way of sin and death. Open our hearts to your grace and truth. Fill us with your holy and life-giving spirits. Keep us in the faith and communion of your holy church. Teach us to love others in the power of the Spirit. Send us into the world and witness to your love. Bring us to the fullness of your peace and glory. And we all said, amen. Now, in Ephesians 3, I didn't read the rest of the prayer to you. I want you to listen to it. And I want you to stand in honor of who God is as I conclude this prayer. Let's stand. Paul, at the very end of that prayer, where he petitions that Christ may dwell in your heart, that you may know his love, that you may be filled with the fullness of God, says this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond anything that we could ask or think. According to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And amen. Let's go in his grace. You're dismissed.